Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for being with me today. Today I've got a really educational, informative show, and I think a lot of people out there will benefit from hearing what Bill's got to say. I've got William Toti. He's the author of From CO to CEO, a practical guide for transitioning from military to industry leadership. He graduated from Annapolis. He served for more than 26 years on active duty. He was a Commodore of a submarine, Squadron 3. Then he spent 15 years as a corporate executive, resulting in a CEO leadership position. He's been featured in different documentaries that include The Lost Ships of World War II, which was on Fox, USS Indianapolis, The Final Chapter, USS Indianapolis, Live from the Deep, another USS Indianapolis, The Legacy, and then on 9-11, One Day in America, which was on National Geographic, and 9-1-1, The Pentagon, and 9 inside the Pentagon. So he's got a very broad military background. Bill, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Lee. What I'm excited, and you've got a very impressive background, but I'm not excited about talking about that. I'm excited about learning more about, because I know what your mission is. Your mission is to try to help veterans understand how coming back and going into industry is different from active duty. And you want to help veterans make that transition. And I was surprised to see a statistic that you shared. And that was that more than 50% of the veterans leave their first job within two years. And that tells me right there, it's not easy. You've been through that transition personally, correct? And that is true. Was it easy for you? It was not. I barely survived my first job. If it wasn't for the kindness of my boss's boss, who kind of became my mentor uh, when I first joined that company, uh, and he he reached out to me tell, to tell me that I was failing. Honestly, I had no concept that I was failing. I mean, that's how out of touch I was with my own performance in my first job. But, you know, due to his graciousness, um, he allowed me to take a hard look at what I was doing and how I was doing it and take corrective action before I became one of those statistics. So how long had you been home? When you moved into that job, were you ready for it, or did you think you were ready for it? I absolutely thought I was ready for it. Of course I did, right? Don't we all? I had <laughs> of been course. Sub- yeah. I'd already been a submarine captain. I'd, uh, I'd been a Commodore of a squadron of six nuclear fast attack submarines. I had a 1,000 sailors working for me. And, of course, I'd watched the movie Wall Street, so I knew everything there was to know about industry, business. Um, obviously, that last part was tongue-in-cheek. But the seriously, you know, most military guys and gals think they know way more about business than they actually do. Because they think, you know, well, what's there to know? <laughs> you know, it's, it's about making money, right? And, and, and I could have filled a book. In fact, I did fill a book with all I didn't know about business when I first started out. So it was a miracle I survived. Uh, I learned the hard way, uh, a bunch of different lessons. And I wrote the book so that other people leaving the military don't also have to learn the hard way. Well, you know, my experience, and I work with with the military in a different experience level, and I own the Brain Performance Center, and a lot of times when vets come back, they have a really hard time transitioning back into life. And, you know, you leave, and you've got a three-year-old, and then you come back, 
and you've got a, a child that's definitely got their own opinions and maybe they've had a you know maybe they've been the only male in the house and they're the little guy that's in charge and I mean there's just a lot of of confusion when somebody's been gone and they come back and they try to reestablish themselves I mean I've had people say to me Lee you know my relationship with my life right now it sucks yeah you know Families tend to develop established roles for each one of the family members, the father, the mother, um, and to some extent, the children, you know, and then you go away on deployment, you know, either the father or the mother is gone for six months to a year. During that time, the other partner has to pick up those activities, those responsibilities that the deployed person used to do. And after a few months, you know, a rhythm develops at home. And and the rhythm becomes, if not comfortable, something that, you know, people, the, the person comes to understand and expect. And there's elements of it, you know, that I would I think it's fair to say the person who's left behind begins to actually appreciate the the fact that they don't have to coordinate opinions with their partner. You know, nobody nobody needs to get anybody's um, use the word permission. That's not the right word, but you get the you get the point I'm trying to make. And then you add to that the fact that, and this is true for me, I went away on deployment once with an young, you know, I would say infant son, I came back, he didn't know who I was. And there's that aspect of it is getting to know your kids, maybe for the first time, maybe getting to know them again. They have a memory of you that may not match (laughs) the, the reality when you come back, right? So there's that aspect of it. And the partners, you know, the, the person who's coming back from deployment believes they're just going to fall back into the old routine. But that's really uncomfortable because the partner staying behind, the, is, which is more often than not the wife, um, she has developed a way of coping, a way of filling in the gaps. And it may not be very comfortable for her to just kind of step back and different personalities react differently to that. In some families, because obviously I've been around thousands of military families over the course of my career, some families, the the wife is, is very happy to have, to be able to share the duties and responsibilities again. And those transitions often go well, but there's other, experiences where the partner is a little bit may perhaps a little bit more assertive and they kind of like being in charge and no they don't want to give up some of the things that they took over in particular in cases where they think they corrected things right in the partner's absence they're able to fix this or that you know the checkbook whatever it is and now wait a minute it's going to get broken again so yeah, this can be very stressful. So the home reintegration experience is one stressor. Of course, that that adds to whatever stressors might exist with respect to career and work after the deployed partner gets back. Well, you know, it's interesting because having having worked with some military and spoken with them, it's like you make a decision that it's time to move on. And I think that in their mind, they think, okay, well, I'll just, as you said, I'll go back, I'll pick up the pieces, everything's going to fall into place, and uh, it'll work. And then they come back, and maybe things, things have changed so much that the options that they thought were out there when they left aren't out there. You know, maybe technology has changed, the skill set that they had as a, and thought that they would be able to use 
as a source of revenue to support their family. Maybe that's outdated. There are so many things that can impact that return. And then when I stop and think about what about those that experienced a traumatic event while they were gone? Yeah, there are issues um, to understand and work through in every aspect. Even even if the service member has not is not a combat veteran, there may be events during their service that will cause those kinds of stressors to develop. Uh, and of course, if they are a combat veteran, and, and one thing I want to make clear is many people who deploy into a combat zone are not true combat veterans the way we think of them. For you know, the tooth to tail ratio, that's an expression that describes how many are actually in the war fight relative to how many are supporting the war fight. The tooth, tooth to tail ratio is about five to one. So for every you know, five people deployed in, in a war zone, only one of those five will have seen on average true combat. That doesn't mean the other four are without issues because they'll have been around it. They may have been medical uh, assistance for the combat veterans, uh, critical care. Uh, you know, there, there are places where people outside of a combat zone um, experience mortar attacks, like what's happening in Syria right now, uh, where there, there are injuries or fatalities with people who were not technically in combat. I mean, I guess you could say that about those of us who were in the Pentagon in 9-11. And all of those factors can add to the stressors, even if the veteran wasn't um, formally you know, in combat. So yeah, that's, a, that's an entire portfolio of issues that has to be developed. Then there's the portfolio of issues that the military actually creates. And what I mean by that is when the military, when, when a service member decides it's time for them to move on, as you said, the military wants that service member to feel really, really good about their service. And they want the military member to, to think that the experiences and the skills they developed while they were on active duty are directly translatable to their civilian life. Some of them are, <laughs> many of them are not. And when the military tells them that, you know, you're going to be, you're going to hit it out of the park as a civilian because of all this, these skills you've developed in active duty, that may not be true. And when it turns out not to be true, that becomes a serious issue for that veteran. And so that's an entire different portfolio of problems the veteran has to work through. So, you know, Bill, when you when you join the military, you go in and you learn how to operate within that system, within that environment. You go through a boot camp or maybe it's called different things in different branches, but you're assimilated in. When you come out of the military, do you have an exit cap that helps you understand that you're transforming to a different lifestyle? You, you have a program that's supposed to help you make that transition. The problem is it becomes the blind leading the blind. There are two fundamental problems with the military's program. And the truth is, when I, before I wrote the book, I had no desire to write a book because it's a long and difficult process. It's a lot of work. And these days it costs a lot of money. Um, I tried working with those offices to help them improve their training in lieu of writing a book. The two problems are the people who run those programs have never worked in industry themselves. Most of them have gone straight from the military into becoming training people, uh, training military folks on what civilian life is going to be like when they have no idea what it's going to be like them, themselves. That's the blind 
leading the blind problem, right? So the second problem is that the government does not measure uh, success uh, for the veterans once they've transitioned and doesn't hold those people responsible for those transition programs accountable for the success. So if you're in industry, you have a job, your job is X, you get evaluated based on the company's performance on how well you've done X, right? There's feedback. There's the company knows whether you're doing a good job with this or not. The company measures a whole bunch of metrics to determine whether you're doing a good job or not. In, in the case of these transition training programs, what the government ought to do is for every, let's say Bob is a transition training person and government could keep track of all the veterans that Bob has trained and they do follow-up surveys, one year, five years. And then Bob's performance would be evaluated on how well his veteran trainees are doing. Of course, the government never does anything like that, right? The government being the government essentially doesn't care, or at least that's the way it acts. It doesn't care. It throws the veterans out into the deep end of the pool, says, have a good life, and, and that's pretty much it. You know, there's some veterans administration programs where really good people that are really overwhelmed try to do something to help the veterans. But beyond that, there's essentially nothing. Well, it's interesting because my dad was a veteran and he died when I was 12. As a result, he lost a lung in World War II. But his affiliation with the vets, with the VA, was so intense. He would not go to any hospital outside of the VA hospital. And the veterans that mm -hmm. I speak with in my office today, the VA is just non-existent to them. They're looking for help. They're, the VA is, I think, is so overwhelmed with the, just the volume that they don't have the they don't have much to give. Lee, that's the issue. By and large, people I've met in VA clinics and hospitals are really, really good people doing God's work for not a lot of money because they care. The problem is they are absolutely overwhelmed. We had a 20-year war we just got out of. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of veterans who went through the military during that 20-year war perhaps millions, and the VA is just not sized, funded, or equipped to deal with the volume. If you get into VA care, it's generally very good. The problem is access, not quality. And so, you know, whether you, you, it's almost as badly, you know, let's say you have problem, you've got brain issues, and so I'll, I'll describe it that way given the nature of your podcast. It's almost to the point where you have to intimate that you're having suicidal ideations before you can get anybody to see you. It's not one of these issues where you can get treatment to prevent it from escalating to the point where you have these suicidal ideations because there's just not enough care. So if you profess, you know what, I, I'm at the point where I'm thinking of harming myself, see you right away. They'll talk to you at least right away. But beyond that, you know, the, the whole spectrum of care that should precede somebody getting to that point is sorely lacking. And that's why, sadly, the, the veteran suicide rate has gotten so high. They try to find help. They just can't. Well, and there is, you know, there is an awareness of this, uh, of the, the need to help veterans on many levels. The I'm located in Dallas, Texas, and I'm working to create the Star Fund, which would be a collaboration 
of different services that would provide these veterans and provide first responders with the quality of care that they so need and they so deserve. So there is, I think that we're, we're, and I am not, my dad loved the veterans. The VA was the Mm -hmm. best diversity experience that one could ever ask for in life. So I have nothing but goodness in my heart, but I'm also a realist and I see when, you know, the magnitude, the supply and demand, when one is so much greater than the other, it it leaves a lot lacking. And I'm so pleased to have you on the show today to, to talk about how people get successfully reintegrated. Because the way I grew up, you know, your job was your purpose. And the little bit that I know about the military, I was very blessed. I've been, I'm finishing a PhD program and I did a dissertation and I got to interview several, had people, several people in my uh, qualitative study that talked to me about the military experience. And, and it's so inclusive and, you know, you don't, you don't practice, you train. I mean, things come to mind and then you come out and nobody says anything. Hey, man, get a job. Go to work. How did you feel when you first thought those words or heard those words? Well, I was um, I was anxious to do all those things myself without anybody telling me to do it. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to move on with my life. I was in the point I was in my mid 40s and I realized if I didn't get cracking on my second career, right? I wouldn't have a career, I would have just a job. And so I was very anxious to do it. There are a bunch of obstacles though. I lived in McKinney at the time, right north of Dallas. And, you know, I was was dealing with um, some PTSD issues myself from uh, my time in the Pentagon. 9-11 was bad enough. What was really bad is I got put in charge of the recovery effort. And so 9-12, 9-13, 9-14, you know, going in, seeing the bodies in there before they were reco- recovered was traumatic. And it took me years to deal with that. And, and happily, it's, it's resolved. But there was no program in, uh, you know, where I lived in McKinney. If there was, I hope I would have taken advantage of it. But there's a pretty good chance I wouldn't have out of pride. Um, but, you know, you never know. And so it's, it's vital that people understand that, you know, this is an issue for veterans and, and the, the transition is difficult enough, even if you aren't going through those kinds of stresses. And as you said, they deserve it. They Absolutely. Deserve it. Absolutely. That's, you know, they do deserve it. And, and when you when you put your life on the line to to defend others and then you come back and you don't maybe feel like that your life is right where it needs to be that that's got to really be a frustrating feeling and you don't feel it alone you share it with your family and it, whether or not you want to it it does get shared because you can't hide, you can't hide that trauma. And I, I can't imagine you go in and you, you form very close friendships and, and brotherhood and you come out and you don't have anybody left. You know, who, the people that were there with you, that, that helped you to become the soldier that you, that you did. And then you're the only one left, and there's got to be a lot of guilt around that. Why me? And, I mean, there's so much from a psychological standpoint, and that's really where my heart is, owning the Brain Performance Center and, and running that under the license of a professional counselor. So I hope that our listeners will stay with us. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I really, and I so appreciate you being so open and transparent and sharing your story, Bill. We'll be back. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. It 
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. News Daily reported a story from CareerBuilder that gave some humorous examples of actual job interview blunders. One Boris Norris candidate decided to take off his shoes during the interview. Probably not the best idea, even if you don't have smelly feet or podobromhidrosis. Another job applicant brought a how-to-interview book with him to the interview. Then he asked, what company is this again? And my favorite, the candidate who asked for a sip of the interviewer's coffee. That will cause a latte problems, and also it's a bit bumptious. And finally, one job applicant asked the interviewer if they could wrap it up quickly, because he had another appointment. And a special thanks to our armed forces, men and women serving at home and abroad. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Well, thanks for staying with us. We've got a lot more to talk about in the last part of the show. And there's just so many different variables that come into play. And it's so nice to have someone that's actually lived every single one of them and to talk about how he came out and he wanted to jump back in. He wanted to start that second career. And had probably had a, a lot of confidence after what he had achieved in his military career. And then all of a sudden, you find out your boss's boss tells you, hey, man, you're not cutting it. That's, I mean, I see that as a pure blessing. How about you, Bill? Oh, it was absolutely a blessing. I, you know, it's one of those moments in your life that you replay over and over again. You're like, turns out I was in London for business in a hotel room. It was kind of late at night. It was, and my boss's boss was working out of El Segundo, California. And he didn't know where I was or what time zone I was in. And he called me and, you know, I just had dinner. I was kind of getting ready to go to sleep. And, you know, I knew it was rarely we call without it being arranged in advance. Uh, And so I knew this wasn't going to be pleasant. But I didn't know how bad it really was going to be. Um, and, but I'm, it was a blessing. That's exactly the right way to describe it, because it allowed me to take a take a hard look at not only what I wasn't achieving, but but how I was getting it so wrong with respect to um, evaluating my own performance. Because I thought I was doing a great job. And to hear that I was not only wasn't I doing a great job, I wasn't even doing an adequate job. That was a message I really needed. You know, I'm reminded, Lee, there's a there's a movie that, come, that came out several years ago. I think it's called The Intern. And you know, honestly, it wasn't a very good movie, and I didn't get all the way through it. But But the premise was that Robert De Niro is like a grandfatherly guy who goes back into the workforce at his advanced age. And there's so much truth in that, back to military veterans entering the workforce, because you are entering, you know, midlife, let's say. And uh, the, the people who have the equivalent amount of industry in your company 
are likely in their early 20s. <laughs> and so they're essentially your peers. And they're, that, that's kind of a really an eye-opening moment where you say, I've commanded a submarine squadron, <laughs> you know, um, and, and now I'm kind of being relegated to this role that this 24-year-old has. Um, that can, can really ha have an impact on your pride if you don't <laughs> start to humble yourself and realize that, wait a minute, that's true. But I haven't forgotten all that stuff that I learned through my lifetime. So maybe if I learn this business stuff, I can accelerate quicker than that 24-year-old will. But, but you have to humble yourself. That's kind of the first step in all of that. Well, so when you went into that, I mean, I've learned a little bit about all the scale, the skills that you develop in the military. And I would think, I mean, certainly you know how to be a team player. Certainly Absolutely. being a commander of a squadron, you had maturity, you you had resilience. I mean, you had all those skills. And did they just not fit? in the organizational world or were they not appreciated or how were they impacted? How were those skills not maximized? So, yeah, and this gets into why I wrote my book because the teamwork issue is absolutely true. You know, the military develops so many great traits in you, ability to work in a team, ability to endure hardship, which is lacking in a lot of young people, right? Uh, we, we, the expression we use in the military is we, we know how to embrace the suck. Yeah, it sucks, but we're going to embrace it. Um, and so there's a lot of great skills. On the other hand, it also comes with a bunch of baggage. We tend to think we're better than we are. There's an arrogance that develops. There's an old book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And what that means is the more successful you were in your prior life, the more it sets you up for failure in a different environment, right? And it, a lot of military people who transition into the civilian world think I was extremely successful in the military. Therefore, ergo, I'm going to be successful in industry. And there, you know what? Those two things are not connected. In fact, the more you think you can leverage your military success, the higher the likelihood is that you're going to crash and burn in the civilian world. And another bit of baggage is, you know, and I use this expression with my military friends all the time, who they think they're good leaders. And I say, well, you know what, leadership is hard. But it's even harder when you're leading people who can actually quit. When I was on a submarine, my crew might have disagreed with me. But in final analysis, there was no place for them to go. They weren't going to leave that submarine, right? It, but when you're in civilian industry, your crew doesn't agree with you. They vote with their feet. Suddenly, people are abandoning you. People are quitting. That's even harder. And that's, you know, so people come out of the military thinking they're a great leader, and they don't understand that unless they learn to adapt their leadership style, to a civilian workforce, it's going to work against them. This is arrogance about what they, how, you know, how talented they think they are in leadership. And there's a bunch of other things like that where if you don't modify your behavior, it's going to be, it's going to go bad for you. And those factors are really the kinds of things that I watched over and over and over again to the point where I said, now I got to do something about this and, and ended up writing that book. So if I asked you, you know, about that book and I said, Bill, if there are three things in there that people could know out of that book that could really make their life a lot easier getting back into the civilian life, what would they be? The first one I would say is that Military folks really do need to understand and internalize the mission. So I'll use that, underline that word mission. 
in the military, the mission is self-actualizing. It's defense of the country. It's easy to understand. You know, it's, it's, it's very fundamental and basic. In private industry, the mission may not be as easy for that military person to internalize, but they still have to accept the fact that there is a mission and they have to accept and adopt the mission. And once they do that, then everything else becomes easier. The second thing is, you know, I'd say to folks, it doesn't matter what rank you came out as. Number one, you should never use your rank in your civilian job because it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is, is success. But the, the other aspect of that is you're not a general anymore. When you go to the civilian job, general, you're a second lieutenant all over again because you don't know anything about what it's going to take to succeed in this new environment. And that's the business of you need to find that humility and, you know, and, and rebalance yourself or you will fail. And, and boy, will it hurt your pride when you get fired because I've had to fire generals in the past. And, and the third thing I would say is that, um, you know, a team is a team. That's true, but the flavor of your team, I'm, it's not the right word, is going to be very different than what you're used to. Um, you know, the old, you know, methods of authoritative, authoritative command are not going to work. You're going to have to use a different leadership style and be more of a coach and, you know, and understand that, you know, there's good, it's going to be a different, the method of success and the method of mission accomplishment is going to be very different than what you're used to. So those three factors, I'd say, now, it would be what folks should take away uh, from the book. So within those three factors, you touch on different things. And the when I think of the military strength, I think it's teamwork. I mean, I think that mm-hmm. you guys know how to do that. So do you just do it differently in the military than you do in an organization? You know, it's fair to say you do everything differently in the military, but the teamwork is probably the one attribute that transitions the best because there's not a lot of difference between teamwork in the military and teamwork in industry. I would say that to some extent, um, this is going to sound strange. There's more backstabbing in the military than there is in industry. I would say in government. I, I, I don't just want to limit it to, to the military. Um, in industry, the company succeeds or fails, and, and pretty much it's, it's egalitarian, much more egalitarian. Everyone benefits when it succeeds, and everyone suffers when it fails. A military organization can fail and not have anybody in the organization suffer at all uh, if you're not in combat. Uh, So, you know, it it becomes a situation where there's a lot more jockeying for position in government than there is in industry. In industry, your reputation is going to be built upon your achievement, and those achievements are measurable. If you want to boil it down to its basic fundamentals, it becomes dollars. The achievements are measurable. They're empirical. They're not. They're quantitative, not qualitative. None of those factors exist in government. Everything is qualitative, and so um, you know. It's so I say that the industry is more egalitarian. What I tell my active duty friends is, good people succeed more readily in industry, and bad people are not tolerated in industry, um, in the government, in, in the military as well. You know, bad people are, can be protected and, and, and never have to worry about losing their jobs. So there's a whole bunch of differences and that affects the teamwork dynamic that you're talking about. So there are a lot of differences 
um, that people don't anticipate until they experience them firsthand. So when you left the military and you entered the organizational life, was there any, I mean, luckily you were blessed. Someone above you said, hey, man, you better wake up, sink or swim, or I don't know, however he said it, but obviously he got his message across. Was there any other assistance Mm -hmm. that you got? Mm, No. Um, It was, well, I mean, obviously I would check in with peers with my boss, my boss, because that was my boss's boss. I try to get feedback from them. Um, I did a 360, and so that's you know really important. Learn from both people who work for you and and you know peers and bosses what they think your strengths and and weaknesses are, where you need to improve. Uh, but but I drove all that myself and. And frankly, that's not inappropriate, right? Um, now, my boss was interested in my success. He didn't want to have to replace me, train somebody new. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he cared. But And by the way, it affected him. If I'm not succeeding, then that's affecting the success of his organization. So, so he absolutely did care. But, you know, again, there was no hand-holding or babysitting when, when all this was happening. It was okay, here's how we think you could improve, but we're not going to walk you through it. You've got to do it on your own. We all have our own jobs. And, you know, I I guess that's the answer to the question. So in the military, let's say, okay, you're not doing this uh, at the level that you should. Do they retrain you? Yeah, to some extent. You in the military, you do get retrained when you're not up to standards. But then there's a kind of a cascading issue where um, there's this process for screening of responsibility. If you're not up to standards, it's unlikely you're going to be screened for the next level of responsibility, which means you'll remain fairly stagnant for the rest of your career. But that's different than being fired, okay? <laughs> oh different. yeah, you know. So in this, in private industry, you don't meet, you don't cut it, you're let go. Uh, that almost never happens in government. Extremely um, rare for that to happen in government. So you get a lot of people who become, and, I, and I've worked on the government civilian side as well as the government uniform side, right? You got a lot of people who become deadwood, uh, who just kind of get along uh, in in the government. And so that doesn't happen in the industry. You pull your weight, you produce, or you go find another job. And again, that's one of those cultural differences that, you know, I think that most military people understand that there's there is a chance of getting fired in a civilian job, but I don't think they understand how directly their own performance influences. There's a stereotype that develops that companies are are mindless and cutthroat, and they fire people when they need to reduce expense. And and I tell my you know civilian friends, you know, because again I. I I was lucky enough to get promoted over the course of my career all the way to CEO. If you are an expense, <laughs> it is likely you will be fired, right? So, because the whole point of being an in industry is to produce. That your your input, your production is greater than your cost. The cost of them paying you, keeping you employed, training, and all of that. If the cost of paying you and keeping you trained is greater than what you're producing, then yeah, you're right, you're gonna get let go. But it's not because the company is cutthroat or you know, all those stereotypical things you think of. And the other thing I say to my military friends and government friends is everybody in government is an expense. Nobody produces. There's no such thing as a profit-making government entity, right? 
So you've got to get your mind right when you make that transition. That this profit and loss thing that exists in industry is going to be new to you. And you need to produce more than you cost. And if you don't, you're going to be let go. Well, how do you wrap your how do you wrap your mind around that? You were in the military for over 20 years. And yeah. I mean, the, you just don't push a button and say, OK, I don't think that way anymore. I think this way now. How do you wrap your your head around it? Well, it took me years, but I wrote it all into a book now. So hopefully it won't take other people who read my book as long as it took me. Uh, you're right. It took a long time to kind of get it. And it's not about understanding finance and accounting. That's not the point here. The point here is this is part of understanding the mission of whatever company you're joining. And and all and getting back to the primary focus uh, of the podcast, it's, you know, the quicker you come to terms with all of this and the better you internalize it and learn it, the less you're going to have to be, you're going to be exposed to stress the stress of working that job, the stress of the transition. And and in final analysis, the reason I wrote my book is to reduce the stress of people who are transitioning and hopefully you're helping helping their psychological condition by doing that. So I'm just curious, what percent of people, I know a lot of people stay in the military and then they retire, but what percent of the, just estimates of the military come out and they reestablish that second career like you did. Oh, I'd say probably 70 to 80%. Wow. When you retire from the military. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you retire from the military, you generally don't not making enough money in your retirement pay to pay your mortgage. You, you often have kids in college at that point in your life. So everybody, pretty much everybody has to work when you retire from the military. Um, and so the question becomes, are you gonna, what, do you, what kind of work are you gonna do? Is it gonna be a job or is it gonna be a career? And these are all questions I actually deal with in the book, but yeah, it's, it's a high percentage. Well, thank you for sharing that because that, that's, it, when it's 70, 80%, that's a lot bigger deal than 20 to 30%. And we've got about five minutes left and you know, I know there's thousands of people that go into the military every day and there's thousands of people that come out, but those that are coming out, those that are going to have to, well, I I hope they don't have to go through what you did, but they are going to have to transition regardless with that transition, the, and you look at what you went through are there any uh, you've and I think the book is an excellent resource and we'll talk about where they can find that in just a couple of minutes. But did you access any other resources? Did you access your spiritual side? Did you I mean, is there anything else that you reached deep down within and were able to pull out and access that did help you? I wish I could have, I didn't come to faith until much later in my life. Um, and so that that's sad because now I understand how much it could have helped me through uh, those periods. Uh, but you know, for whatever reason, sometimes we, our intellect gets in the way of the truth. Um, yep. And for me, that's what was happening is my intellect was getting in the way of seeing the truth. And so I, I wish I had that. And I 100% recommend people, um, you know, find the truth in life and, uh, and use that as a resource because it makes everything better. It makes everything better. It puts your life in perspective um, and it makes everything better. The, the I found my therapy, I needed a therapy that was gonna help me feel better when I was finished than worse. So I, I actually, somebody suggested golf to clear my mind, but I always felt worse after I played golf than I did before. So that, <laughs> that didn't work for me. What I ended up finding was uh, photography, uh, landscape photography. I would go out 
in the wilderness and in front of beautiful mountains uh, and capture images because your mind is 100% clear when you're staring at that mountain. You know, none of the stressors, if, they, if your stressors are hanging on to you when you're doing that, something seriously wrong because it's, you know, you want God's, the wonder of God's nature and it should inspire and awe. And that's what I was doing um, to, to actually help my mind stay clear with all of the dynamic transition problems that were occurring, not to mention the PTSD. So, so that was it. Of course, family, um, the family was very you know, helpful, although they, there was a period of time where they said that dad's different. Yeah. Um, where they, they, you know, said, we're not sure why and we're not sure how to help, but something's going on that we don't understand. And my failure to seek help um, was a problem. Uh, you know, I eventually got through it, but it probably would have got through, through it a lot quicker had I sought help. Um, well, Bill, I can't they, thank you enough. You've just you've you've sure. opened your heart to these. I mean, we've got one minute left, and I hope people have really listened to what you've said in the last three to four minutes. You've opened your heart. You've said, you know what? No, I didn't do that. I wished I would have, but this is what I did do. So I, I for those people out there that do want to get that book, where can they find it? It's available. Anywhere it's from CO to CEO, a practical guide for transitioning from military and industry leadership. It's obviously on Amazon, but also Kindle and Apple eBooks and audiobooks via Audible. So whatever format works for you. Perfect. And if they want to find you online, do you have a Facebook or anything, a LinkedIn or? I have a website, WilliamTody.com. Tody is spelled T-O-T-I. Tango Oscar, Tango India for your military folks. There you go. Thank you so much, Bill. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show and to learn from you. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes. Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TheBrainPerformanceCenter.com. Center.com.